loop together. And uh, if you need something to pick you up, we do still have coffee there in the back, uh, just in case. Um, I know. I notice. Uh, I, I think Wayne notices this too. But some of y'all are praying during our preaching, praying. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so there is coffee for you to help you uh, be alert, and uh, you know that's a nice way of saying you're sleeping during our message. We see you. We see you. So the Lord sees you too, right? So, but Luke chapter nine verse. 28 through 36 is our text. Let's go there together. Starting in verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And he, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and he kept silent and told no one in those days, anything of what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Father, be with us today. We need you. I need you. We all need you today. I thank you that you have brought your people here. It's a miracle that we gather together. Father, throughout the world, we're seeing secularization taking over the mindset of people. People are religious. People uh, know the Bible, but they do not know you. And so we're here, God, wanting to know you. And God, we know you only, we know you imperfectly. But that's why we have your word. Align our thoughts, our will, and our desires, even our discouragements, our challenges. Everything that we're going through, that it would be in accordance to your will, God. That, it would, that we would see that all things work together for the good of those who are in Christ. And so be with us today. May your word Bring life. Be with us. We need you today. God, I pray that I will not be concerned with people pleasing and that they will not be concerned with just an excellent sermon. But Lord, I pray that we would all desire to worship you in the listening and in the preaching of your word. We need you, Lord. So help us today. We ask in Jesus' name and everybody said Amen. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Saints, what have you seen as a believer in Jesus Christ that has motivated obedience and faith in God? What has motivated you to obedience and faith in God? What, what have you seen that has caused this? Uh, Calvin was right when he said, our faith is never perfect. And then he goes on to say, we are partly unbelievers. 
Some of us still need sanctification because we operate at times out of a place of unbelief. Oz Guinness, one of my favorite speakers, said, unbelief in the biblical view is not passive and innocent, but inaccurate view of the world that has unfortunately got it wrong at a few points. Rather, he says, unbelief is active, driven by a dark dynamism. And so our faith and our unbelief every week are at war with each other. Amen? Amen. Nevertheless, we need to remember our need as believers to stir the faith that God has given us every week, saint. So what do we have that can stir our faith daily and weekly and be used so much that it will not wear out? What can stir our faith that never wears out weekly? Just a heads up, ministry will wear out as a motivator for faith. So ministry is not enough. What will never wear out? What tool has God given us to stir our faith every week? I believe, as I was talking to a brother the other day, uh, it's our eternal reward. Knowing we have a reward is a sure motivator for our faith and obedience to Christ. Now, the question is, what is our reward? D.A. Carson said his promise to be with us to the end of the age is thus the matrix out of which we obey the Great Commission. Simultaneously, the ground and the goal, the basis and the reward is to be with Christ. I'm not wasting my time. <laughs> you know, I didn't get saved at 15 to then change my whole life, wasting my time and doing this for nothing. What's carried me through it all was Jesus and him revealing himself to me as my reward. Our reward is to be with Christ. He is our reward, which we had seen ourselves when we came to faith. We've seen it. That sense of assurance and hope in us that Christ is our reward should compel us to worship, should compel us to holiness, should compel us to run from temptation, should compel us to come to church. We need more time to think deeply about this. We often make the mistake of being so much on our devices that we don't have time for God in the closet. To know Christ is to see Christ. Furthermore, to see him is to believe in him. It means that we have seen the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We have seen the chief cornerstone, the head of the church, the holy one, the judge, the light of the world, the prince of peace, son of God, son of man, the word, the word of God, the word of life, alpha and omega. The Emmanuel, the I am, Lord of all, true God, author and perfecter of our faith, the bread of life, the bridegroom, the deliverer, the good shepherd, the high priest, the lamb of God, the mediator, the rock of our salvation, the resurrection and the life, savior, true vine, the way, the truth, and the life. That's who we saw. 
In other words, the Bible makes it very clear that he's all we need. He is all we need to see and know that all will be well. So in today's text, Jesus gives Peter, James, and John all they need to see. He reveals to them who he was the whole time. So what we're seeing in our text is who Jesus was the whole time. So our outline for today, for you note takers, point number one, the appearance of Jesus. In verse 28 through 30, the appearance of Jesus. 28 through 30. Second point, the awakening to his glory. 32 to 33, the awakening to his glory. And then last, the affirmation of the Father. Verses 34 through 36. The affirmation of the Father, verses 34 through 36. So point number one, the appearance of Jesus, verses 28 through 30. In this verse, in verse 28, by saying Luke means statements or questions from Jesus prior to our text. So what sayings is Luke mentioning here? He says now about eight days after these sayings. Well, first, the saying of his death in Luke 9.22, where he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. That saying is what Luke is talking about. The second one, the saying of the cost of following him. Remember that? Luke 9, 23 through 26. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Then he says, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul himself, according to Luke? And for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. After these sayings, then the saying about what some would see before they would die in Luke 9, 27, he says, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And so our passage today happens eight days after the sayings of Jesus, where he spoke about his death the cost of following him, and that some would see him before they would die. What would some see before they would die? Well, I believe the some here, he's speaking of Peter, John, and James. Who was Peter? Knucklehead Peter. An apostle. He was named as one of the pillars of the church. After rejecting Jesus three times, he became a pillar. Man, that's an awesome testimony. Peter was the first to share the gospel to the Gentiles. Later, he would share the gospel to the Jews. Who was John? John was one of the 12 apostles. He was a fisherman at the Sea of Galilee. John and his brother James were both called to follow Christ. And he also was the author of the gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in Revelation. Who was James? James was a disciple as well. He's not to be confused with James, the brother of Jesus, or James, the son of Alphaeus. Tradition will call him James the Greater. And to this, the other James, they call him the Lesser. Damn, that's, that's, that's tough. <laughs> that's, so, that's so whack, right, to be known historically as the Lesser. You're, you're the whacker, you know, you're down here. But not all the disciples were there. We know that very clearly. But these three disciples followed Christ to the mountain while he went up to pray. 
All three synoptic gospels have this account where it follows that, or it lays out that Peter's confession took place where Jesus was the Christ. Then Jesus tells his disciples to tell others, not to tell others of his messianic identity. And then Jesus predicts his suffering, death, and resurrection. He also gives warning to those who are ashamed of his words. So he reveals himself before saying these things. So some might be asking, why does the transfiguration follow these things? Well, Jesus had spoken about his death. When someone tells you they're going to die, or you know someone's going to die, what's, what's the thought process behind that? They're not coming back. Right? Unless you're on some thriller, right? <laughs> or something happens. But when, some, when you know someone's sick and they're going to pass, it usually follows that we're not going to see that person again. It's not coincidental that Christ is displaying himself this way in our text before he dies. Jesus had already confirmed that he is the Christ through the works he did. And more importantly, Peter's confession, which came from the Father, was confessed. He believed, and, or the Father showed him that he was the Christ. So God would reinforce this truth about Jesus by displaying him, not just who he is in the title of being the Christ, but in his appearance. So they would see who Jesus is. In verse 29 of our text, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. So before Peter came to know Jesus as the Christ, notice the pattern, Jesus prayed. Now prayer again precedes the revealing of his glory. Luke's account is the only one that tells us that he was praying before this happened. Why did Luke note this and what is he trying to tell Theophilus in our text? I think he's telling him that prayer does matter here. Prayer revealed to Peter that he was the Christ. Prayer is now revealing that he is in his glory. So prayer is that prep. For revelation. Prayer is that prep to see who Jesus is. Jesus prayed before revealing himself to his disciples. Jesus prayed before his face was altered. Altered here means a different kind. Foreign or could have meant even strange. A different class. He did not look the same. So this means that his face is different from before. Matthew's account tells us that his face shined like the sun which is how Jesus is described in the book of Revelation. That's answering some of the questions you might have already. This is an appearance of what Jesus looks like in his glory. And his clothes became dazzling white. This is affirming what Daniel said in Daniel 7, 9. As I looked, Daniel says, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. Who, who's that? His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. And then Mark 9, 3, same account, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. I bleached some clothes in my lifetime, accidentally. Now we get some white, but this is talking about no bleach in the world could do this. Dazzling, radiant white, intense white is what he's talking about here. What, why is this happening? 
Well, Jesus has spoken about his death and they needed to see who he was in his display of glory. What would be added to the testimony of Jesus here? What would God then do while he's revealing the son? He would have two witnesses, not counting the father who would speak from heaven in verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So when introducing the two men, Matthew and Luke call for the reader's attention, saying, behold, that's what Luke is doing here. Behold, Theophilus, pay close attention to what you are reading. Why does Luke call for closer attention? Well, there was two men here, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. You know who Moses was. Moses was the brother of Aaron, the high priest, brother of Miriam. He led the Hebrew people from Egypt to Canaan. Uh, Exodus 33:11 tells us that the Lord used, to, used Moses to speak face to face to uh, as a man speaks to his friend. Moses was unique in that God would show dreams and revelation, but he said, not with Moses. I speak to him face to face. We're, we're like this. Y'all can hear me here and there. You can see me in the cloud. But Moses comes to my presence and we talk face to face. <laughs> he spent 40 days in the mountain receiving revelation from God. He died before entering the promised land. Who was Elijah? You know Elijah, the prophet who worked powerful miracles, calling down fire from heaven. He's remembered for opposing Baal worship when he was taken into heaven. He, he's recognized by Jewish, Christian, and Islamic tradition. These men were icons who spoke to God. Moses spoke to God face to face, and they displayed outstanding miraculous works during their time here. They both appeared in glory and spoke of his departure in our text. We cannot pass that there was one who died, Moses, who was there, and another who did not die, but was taken up. That's interesting to me. I think this could serve as a type and shadow of what will happen when Christ appears again. When he comes, the dead in Christ will rise first, and those that are alive will be taken. You see the representation there. So here, being in their glory, what would be an essential thing they would have to say about the appearance of Jesus? They would speak about what he would accomplish in Jerusalem. Notice they paid no attention to themselves. Notice that Moses and Elijah didn't call for an audience. They were fixated on one thing, what Jesus was about to accomplish. So they spoke about the gospel, his death would accomplish salvation for those in need of a savior. Elijah and Moses were just spectators. On their best day, they spoke about what Jesus would accomplish, which is a good example for us. What about us? On our best day, what do we talk about? What do we do and say on our best days? Does the gospel preoccupy us? Moses and Elijah could have went through their whole list of how God used it powerfully, but it was nothing in comparison to what they were seeing here. They did not even mention their accomplishments. They were only concerned with what Jesus would accomplish. This confirms again that what Jesus said about 
what he was going to do, uh, according to Luke chapter 24, he goes through the text and tells them that the scriptures were speaking about me. Well, what were Peter and the others doing? They were sleeping. <laughs> the awakening to his glory in the second point, verses 32 to 33, which I believe is a mistake. They were just knocked out. This probably tells us that even uh, that this event actually happened late into the night and they were sleeping and this took place because they were tired. And after they woke up fully awake, they saw his glory. And notice that Luke does not say they saw him. They saw his glory. Found that very interesting. The glory here means his reflected radiance that demanded honor and recognition. They woke up and saw this amazing, eminent, like, powerful display of glory. How would you like to wake up to that in the morning? Forget coffee, right? That'll get you up. That'll get you going. I don't know about you, but if that happened Sunday morning, I'd be in revival right now, right? I would have been jumping. I would have been hopping. I would have been like, we should have done that anyway. It just shows you the hypocrisy sometimes, right? What is it that we need to get us going spiritually? <laughs> why, does, why does it feel like we have to make God jump through hoops for us? That's disrespectful. When you come to the house of God, worship the Lord. He deserves it. And if you're worried about your neighbor beside you, uh, you should be more worried about the God before you. That's not in my notes. I'm sorry. Uh, we can talk later if you're offended. And if you're offended, that's what's up. That's why we're here, right? So Luke chapter 9:32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood up with him. Stood up with him. The appearance of Moses and Elijah was in the glory that came from Christ. Luke 9:31, Moses and Elijah appeared in glory. And spoke of his departure. It can also be stated that Moses and Elijah appeared before or in the presence of glory. So this brings about the supremacy of Christ over the greatest known prophets of the scriptures and of tradition. Luke is telling Theophilus and us today that the glory of Christ gave a radiance to the greatest of the prophets. They came into his glory and not the other way around. This brings about the reminder to be careful about what we glory in. We're experts at trading the glory of God. And Romans 1 talks about that. If the greatest of all the prophets were but mere recipients and not the source of glory, shouldn't we boast only about the glory of Christ? So they're, they're, Moses and Elijah, the most powerful of the prophets, the disciples looked and said, look at the glory of Christ. They weren't preoccupied with Elijah and Moses' glory. In fact, they were in the glory of Christ. If they were shining, it was because he was shining. If not for Christ, we would treat his glory like the disciples were treating it here in our text. They were sleeping. These two men, Moses and Elijah, stood with Christ as spectators, not as the object of attention. It brings about how more excellent Christ is, even through those to the, uh, compared to those who are best in Scripture. Our greatness is not found in the great work done in us and for us. 
that is found in the glory of Christ. The example of Moses and Elijah shows us this. They didn't go through their resumes. They just stood there in awe of the Son. They stood with him. They appeared in glory with Christ and in not their own. How would the disciples then respond to this amazing sight? We see in verse 33, And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Peter addressed Jesus as master before. He did this several times. He tells Jesus that it was good that they were there to see what he saw. But if this was good, why wasn't it enough to prevent Peter's denial later? I thought about that. Bro, you you done seen him in his glory. How can you deny? Don't you remember? The fact is, this was... This, this transfiguration, this appearance was not done to change hearts, but to display the glory of Christ so that they would remember after his resurrection. They would remember that Jesus is the Christ. They will recall what Jesus said and taught. Both John and Peter give us a personal account in their own letters about this happening. We'll get to that later. But Peter's response is seen when wanting to make tents for all three of them. However, this seems to be a quick thing. Shocked, maybe, as a response. And I think he missed the point. Why was it specifically Elijah and Moses there? I was thinking about that. That's what, if I was in my right mind with Peter and wasn't sleeping and wasn't alert and had coffee, I would have been like, why is Moses and Elijah there with Christ? If you guys remember what we read before, Luke 9, 7 through 8. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Verses 18 through 19. Now it happened that as he was praying, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who did the crowd say I am? And they answered, this is the people, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. Jesus is not John the Baptist. John the Baptist cleared that up himself. He's not Elijah who was standing right beside him. And he's not one of the prophets. In fact, what God the Father would do is, you know what? These people aren't getting it, so I'm going to bring up the greatest prophet to stand right beside him in his glory. The Father's cleaning up the mess people are making about who Jesus is. He's not Elijah. He's not John. He's not Moses. In fact, they're in his glory. Peter not knowing meant that he did not even understand what he was saying. He must have still been getting it together. Some of y'all will wake up and you're still trying to get it together. Don't even know what's going on. I, I'm not going to put him out there, but, you know, I have like a, he's like a son to me. But when he wakes up, he goes like this and he don't know what's going on. Like, he got to get it together for a couple minutes. Peter just woke up. He sees the glory and he's like stunned by it. 
Let us make tents. Let, he don't know what he's saying. What he should have said is, why is Moses and Elijah there? Because all these people are saying that he could have been Elijah, he could have been Moses, he could have been Je No, they're there. He's not them. He's different. He's the Messiah that was promised by Moses and Elijah and all the prophets. He's clearing up the mess, making sure that they understand the glory of the sun. What they saw was what Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah was so awestruck that he felt his unworthiness. Where was Peter's sense of his? Or where is ours? What would we have done when Jesus revealed his glory? We would say, wow, right? Amazing. But then leave and struggle as we do. F.F. Bruce says, sanctification is glory begun. Glory is sanctification completed. <laughs> Have we taken time to think through the splendor of the king? Robed in majesty. Does all the earth rejoice like the song says? Yes. The earth is rejoicing. The heavens declare the glory of God. But we're the only thing in creation that doesn't cooperate. We can say, no, I'm about my glory. God, you have not been good to me. You haven't given me what I want. I'm frustrated. Life is a wreck. You're not working. So no, I'm not giving you glory because my husband and wife are tripping today. I, I don't feel glory today. Have we truly begun to give glory? And do we eagerly expect the glory to be revealed? Romans talks, it immerses you with that. The glory to be revealed. Stuffing that in the heart of believers who are struggling in persecution and temptation. Stuffing glory in your heart is how you survive. The glory that will be revealed. Peter, James, and John did not have it in them to take in fully what they saw. They were limited because they still had a sinful nature. But when glorified, we will have a nature like his. <laughs> where we will take in perfectly and enjoy the glory that comes from God. And there have been times where I remember I had a beat machine one time and uh, I needed a plug, right? A drum machine, you know, making beats. And so I lost the plug, and I remember getting a, a power plug from Radio Shack. That's how old I was, right? And they closed those down, yeah, from back in the day. And I put too much voltage in, into the drum machine, and, and it fried it. Too much voltage. I was upset because I spent money on this thing. And, I, you know, it fried my drum machine, and that was it for it. I had to get a whole new set, a whole new drum machine. That's exactly, I think, what's happening. They don't have it in them to be able to understand the glory that's being revealed. And we don't have it in us. If left to ourselves the way we are, and we would appear before God, we would disintegrate on the spot. Why do you think God told Moses, no, you can't see me, bro. Like, no, you won't be able to live. No one can see me and live. In other words, no one can see me and survive. 
So what does God do for us? He will give us a glorified body to be able to take in his glory and enjoy it fully. Imagine the greatest time of your life where you felt so good, right? You felt like everything's, ha- everything's good. You woke up good. You're living good. You're breathing good. You're eating good. You're feeling good. Everything's good. Times that by a million, a billion. And you haven't even touched an ounce of what it's going to feel like seeing God in his glory with a glorified body. Doesn't that stir your heart? They were limited, and so are we. But the day is coming where we will enjoy his glory perfectly and, yes, without sin. Lord, come. In the meantime, prayer and worship today is preparation. Going to church is preparation. Fellowship is preparation. If you don't like God's people now, what makes you think you're going to be with God's people for eternity? I don't like coming to church because they're a bunch of... You're going to be with us forever. You might as well get used to it. (laughs) In the meantime, prayer, worship, community, reading his word carefully is practice for what we will do for eternity. This powerful display of Jesus as the king is what they would see. The fullness of the kingdom is experienced when one sees the king. When you see the king, you're seeing the kingdom. Augustine said these three were those some, Peter, James, and John, of whom he had said there be some here which shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man in his kingdom. Then he says there is a small difficulty here. For that mount was not the whole extent of his kingdom. What is a mountain to him who possesses the heavens? What is a mountain? Nothing. I actually intentionally stayed away from what God had done in mountains. He has done historically things on the mountain, but it's not about the mountain. (laughs) It's about the one who possesses the heavens. The point here is that the son is God the son. He is the Messiah promise. He's not John the Baptist. He's not Elijah. He's not one of the prophets. Even the greatest of them, Moses, gleaned from the glory that came from the sun. Even Moses, who spent 40 days and nights with God on the mountain, during that time, Moses did not even eat or drink because the glory sustained him. And after spending time with God, Moses comes down the mountain and his face is shining with the glory of God. Even him was a mere recipient and spectator to the glory of the Son. The author of Hebrews understood this when he said in Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, turn there with me, Hebrews 1, or actually Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6 says, Therefore, holy brothers, You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Verse 3 of Hebrews 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. 
Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify the things that were spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Where does the author of Hebrews understand the greatness of Jesus as a son over Moses, who was a servant? It was from the truth of who Jesus is, which is confirmed not only by revealing himself as greater than Elijah and Moses, but also in the affirmation of God the Father. Our last point in closing, the affirmation of the Father in verses 34 through 36. Reading verse 34, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. As Peter was saying these things. So not only did the appearance of the sun stun them, the cloud that overshadowed them caused them fear. They were afraid, yet they entered the cloud. I find that very interesting because in Exodus 20, the people of Israel were afraid to approach God. So much that they told Moses, you go. We're good here. But the disciples went in. The disciples were afraid as they entered the cloud. Furthermore, they entered most likely because they had walked with Jesus. These three disciples here served as an ex ex excellent example for us and that we can also enter where God is with con without condemnation because of relationship with God. Relationship preceded glory here somehow these men felt like they can go in it also tells us there should be reverent fear not only were jesus elijah and moses there but the father was also there verse 35 and a voice came out of the cloud saying this is my son my chosen one listen to him so out of the cloud we see that god the father spoke he said three things about Jesus. Two of the father's words were descriptive and the other was an imperative. The first thing he would say is, this is my son. The title son reveals Jesus as God the son. Also, don't pass over the relational aspect of the title. Sometimes we look at father and son theologically. But let's step back a little bit and look at it relationally. Sometimes your theology is robbing you from like the, the actual meaning of the term. Theology can get in the way. I was messing with some of my five-point Calvinist people here. But it's true. You can be so theological that you're not getting from the text where you're supposed to get. This is a relational title. The father and the son have a relationship. It's meaningful. There is love included there. And the beauty of it, if you study the word, he's inviting you to that. Why do you think he was the first of many brethren? So when the father sees us, he's seeing us through the title relationship of Christ. We're sons and daughters now. We're not just, you know, going into heaven, living forever. There's a continual relationship with the Father happening. This is a relational title. The Father is affirming that Jesus is his sent one. 
But the father is saying that Jesus has a relationship with him that is not like the prophets or anyone else. Everyone before Jesus were only servants. Jonah was a servant. Joel was a servant. Amos was a servant. Hosea, a servant. The great Isaiah, a servant. Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, servants. Jeremiah, Daniel, servants. Obadiah, Ezekiel, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, servants. All were servants, but Jesus was a son. He was God, the son, the word of God who was there from the beginning. And the father's affirmation of Jesus as the son shows that he is the one who inherits the kingdom from the father. The kingdom and those within it belong to him. So Elijah and Moses were faithful servants, but Christ was the faithful son over God's house. This is stunning for the Jewish mindset. The Jewish mindset had Moses and Elijah at a level that no one else could reach. So to say that Jesus is greater, they also held angelic beings very high. That's what Hebrews does, right? Hebrews is knocking all the titles out in comparison to Christ. Moses is nothing. Angels are nothing. Joshua is nothing. The high priest, nothing. Nothing greater than the great high priest, Jesus Christ. Why is he great? It's not because he's the high priest. It's not because he's greater. It's because he's a son. God the son who has perfect communion with the father. The second thing the father says, my chosen one, it lit literally says my chosen, which means to pick out someone, to make a choice in accordance with significant preference. Jesus over everyone else was chosen for the task before him, which he could only do. Notice that again, the statement is made before Moses and Elijah. If I was there, I'd be like, yo, hold up, though. What about me? I'm a son, too. I called down fire from heaven. We talk face to face. I mean, don't we get any props here? No. Who are you? You're but a servant. I just used you to point to the son. They knew their place. They were quiet. They were just basking in the glory of the son because the all of the scriptures and the prophets was uh, the apex of scripture is the son. They were quiet. Were Moses and Elijah chose chosen for the work they had done? Yes. But it was for the pointing to the son. This work entailed someone who would not sin. Moses couldn't die for your sin. Elijah couldn't die for your sin. John the Baptist couldn't die for your sin. They all fell short, but Jesus could die for your sin. And he has completely. He's God. So this appearance is nothing new. This is who he was the whole time. And this is why the father affirms that Jesus should be listened to, which is the third thing, the imperative, listen to him. This means that the father is not asking. He's telling you, commanding you, commanding the disciples, listen to him. Who else was there? Elijah and Moses, listen to him. 
When Jesus was baptized in Luke 3, the father said of the son, you are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. And here, not only does the father affirm that Jesus is his son, revealing his deity, the father affirms that Jesus is chosen over Elijah and Moses. The father commands the disciples, Elijah and Moses, to listen to the son. We must remember who was there when God the Father spoke. He demanded the audience, not only of the disciples, but Moses and Elijah, to listen to the Son. So what is a mountain, saints? What is a man? What is creation compared to the Son revealed here? I think the point was made. Jesus is far more excellent than anyone who has ever lived, past, present, and future. <laughs> That's the point. Luke 24, 26 to 27, Jesus does this. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. That's the point. Listen to him. Look to him. The Bible's all about him. Verse 36, and when the voice has spoken... Jesus was found alone, and he kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. However, afterwards, Peter and John did say what they saw. This is encouraging. You know, that's why I don't rock with other holy books, because you find these, these disconnections. But if Peter and John, who wrote scripture, James didn't write scripture, but Peter and John did, you would think that they would say something about what they saw, right? 1 John 1, 1 through 4. 1 John 1, 1 through 4, he says, that, and this is from John, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John is saying, I saw it. Did Peter write about it? Second Peter 1, 16 through 18. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18, verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He says in verse 18. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. They saw it. They were encouraged by it. It carried them. These men heard and saw for themselves the living Christ. And saints, we have seen the glory of Christ ourselves in salvation. Though we don't see Christ with our eyes, Jesus said in John 20, 29, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen yet believed. You have seen. I, you know, in class we were talking about something. I, I forgot what we were talking about. 
about how to talk to people who are skeptical or struggle with their faith, I, I like to encourage people by saying, yes, seeing is believing. Yeah. It is. And I've seen Jesus, my Savior and my friend, my brother. I've seen him. Yeah. Not with these eyes, but with my heart, Amen. with my soul, right. with my life. I've been impacted. I can't deny who Jesus is. It's undeniable at this point. I try to run. I try to backslide. Can't even do that right. I try to run, but he is there with me, speaking to me through the word, convicting me of my sin, forgiving me of my mess. There have been times where I've worshipped and I could sense that God is good, that he's merciful and gracious to me, but I don't deserve it. I, feel, I, I felt filth coming to church as a young adult. Because I knew what I did. I struggled, man. I, coming to church was one of the most challenging things for me. Because of my sin. Because of my compromise. Because of my life. And when I came to his presence, I remember every time, man, the Lord during worship. I deserve worship. And so I was just like, yes, Lord, you do. No matter where I'm at in life. No matter what the struggle is. I'm going to come and praise you nonetheless. You may not have seen what these guys saw with your very eyes, but you can see with your heart. So, Lord, I pray today. Would you open hearts like you did Lydia's today? Would you open eyes, the eyes that matter? God, we sometimes can't see right because sin just blinds us. It robs us of the purity of your worth. And so, Lord, I pray for wounded saints that are sinning, that are struggling. Would you, Father God, deliver and care for those who are trying to live holy but struggle? Be with them, Lord. Bring them to the house of God and let them know they can come. For those who are weary and heavy laden over sin, they can come to you and find rest. Teach us to find rest in you. For those who have not come to faith, I pray, God, that you would trade the heart of stone for a heart of flesh. Would you trade sorrow for beauty? Would you take away their sorrow and give them beauty? Give them joy? There's fake joy in the world. We've tried it. We've tasted it. It's bitter. But, Lord, you are the living fountain and we have tasted of your goodness. So I pray that they would taste and see that you are good. That they would know, God, with their very hearts that you are true. Help us to live for your glory this week. God, we're, some of us might be dreading this ne next week of work, of life. Change our hearts to know that you are there with us. We can thrive in the midst of our week, even in the midst of things happening around us. You are still good. Yes. Teach us to worship, not just on Sunday, but on Monday. Lord, teach us how to worship on Tuesday. Help us to teach us how to worship on Wednesday. Teach us how to worship Thursday. Teach us how to worship Friday, Lord. Friday night, teach us how to worship. Saturday and Saturday night, help us to worship you so that we are already doing what we do here today. 
Guard us. We ask in Jesus' name.